portion of God's Word that you and I will get a chance to focus our attention on for a few minutes this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephaphatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our risen Redeemer. Amen. After the miracle, the the crowd says, he has done all things well. Key words, all things that's an absolute, right? They're, they're referring to everything. When, I, when I've had a chance to do relationship counseling, whether it be before a, a marriage or maybe during a marriage, a, a topic that comes up just about every single time is caution over speaking in absolutes. When a husband says to his wife, you always, red flag goes up, danger, danger, <laughs> Or or vice versa, if a a wife says to her husband, you never, red flags going up. (laughs) This is a dangerous way to speak. In any relationship, of course, in marriage, it's it's very important that we be aware when we say things like always and, and never, but really in any relationship. Blanket statements like that rarely ever help. Here we have an example of people who are overwhelmed with amazement. We'll we'll talk more about that in a minute. But I just want you to think about what they say. He has done all things well. That's saying a lot. If you know anything about Jesus, we could probably say, well, yeah, he's Jesus. He's perfect. He's done all things well. This is true. And maybe we just read right past it and don't actually think about what they're saying. What I want you to consider this morning is this. Do they actually believe what they're saying? Do they actually believe Jesus has done all things well? Because their actions tell us very clearly that they do not perfectly believe what they are saying. In order to make that point, let's just walk through the text very slowly together. There's a lot of details in here I don't want you to miss. So if you'd like to follow along, feel free to pull your worship folder out and follow along as we just walk our way through the text. So Jesus is up to the north again. Um, Just a few weeks ago we had this, this context. He was up in Tyre, coming down through Sidon. So we're up on the 
Let's see, for you guys, Mediterranean Sea would be over here. And, and here's your coast, right? He's up here in the northwest, in Tyre, in Sidon. And he's coming down over here toward the Sea of Galilee, in the north part of, of Israel. Down to the Sea of Galilee, into the region of the Decapolis. Decapolis literally means ten cities. So there was ten little cities in, a, in an area together. They're, they're in the ten cities region. And there some people bring to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they beg him to place his hand on the man. That right there tells us a lot about where, where this crowd was spiritually. What they believed. Right? Their actions here show us they believe Jesus is capable of a whole lot. If you know someone who's deaf, and, and you bring that deaf friend to, to meet me, and you beg me to place my hand on the man, I, I, I certainly could. Maybe they need a, a, a hug. Maybe they need some comfort. Uh, but you know as well as I do that my touch will do nothing for their deafness. I could touch their shoulder all I want and nothing will change. I could put my fingers in their ears and I could spit and touch their tongue and nothing will happen. You know this, I know this. They're asking Jesus to touch the man because they think that his touch can do something. They've learned enough, they've heard enough, they've seen enough perhaps of Jesus to be absolutely convinced if you merely touch this deaf man, your touch can help. That's important. Let's not overlook it. They have faith. They know something about Jesus and they cling to that truth in faith. He is God's son. He is capable of help. Jesus does more than they ask. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. The detail there that's always fascinated me is just the fact that Jesus takes him aside. Doesn't need to go far, right? If we're visiting after church out in the parking lot and there's, oh, 10, 12, 15 people standing in a circle and I just tap one of you on the shoulder and I say, hey, just, we take four or five steps over to the side, what does that say? I, I just want to talk to you for a minute, right? It's, this is important enough that you and I should just be focused on each other and not be distracted by everyone else. And, and to someone who can't hear, and who can hardly talk at all, this is a big deal. Today, modern American Sign Language has made it possible for, for people who are deaf, who can hardly talk with their mouth, to get degrees, to get PhDs. They can, they can learn. They can be taught to read. They can be taught to communicate. They can be taught to do just about anything you and I can do can be accomplished by someone who's deaf. But you may be aware that's, that's relatively new in, in society. For a long time, you really needed to love someone who was deaf in order to, to put the time in to communicate to them. And the only deaf people who, who thrived were those who had support around them, people who loved them and cared for them, who took the time and the effort to communicate, to come up with a system of communication. Jesus takes this man away from the crowd. It shows he cares. It shows that he wants to communicate with the man. What's he doing? He's saying, right here, I'm going to do something right here in your ears. And, and this tongue of yours that doesn't work right there, I'm going to do something right there. And that's when Jesus speaks. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephephatha, which means be open. The text clearly says Jesus spoke this word to the deaf man. 
I wonder if, if Jesus, in his grace, opened his ears right at the beginning of the sound so that the man could hear the word? Or, or were the man's ears opened after the word was spoken so he saw the lips moving but didn't actually hear the word come out? Did the people who brought the man hear it? Oh, you bet. You bet. The people who trusted that if Jesus touched, he could heal, heard a word, be opened, and then saw the result. Exactly what Jesus' powerful words said happened. His ears were opened. His tongue was loosened. It literally says his tongue was set free. It was liberated. He could talk. Here's the most interesting detail in the text to me. After this is all over, Jesus had spoken a word to a man who couldn't hear and couldn't speak. And now he's going to speak another word to people who can hear and can speak. We're not told exactly the word he used, but we're told he commanded them not to say anything. Think about this. They just heard Jesus' powerful words command a deaf man to hear, and he did. And now those same powerful words of the Son of God communicate a message to them. Shut your mouths. Close them. Do not use them. Don't tell anyone about this. And we're told the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. That's another language geek thing that's really interesting in the Greek. It literally says, he kept commanding. So it's the same word. He commanded them not to speak. And then it says, as much as he kept commanding, they talked more. So maybe the picture looked something like this. Guys, don't tell anyone about this. And one person in the crowd runs over to somebody who maybe was within quick access but didn't really know what was going on and runs over, come here, come here, you got to hear about this. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't tell anyone about this. And then a guy on this side of the crowd runs over there and grabs somebody at the market and tells him to come over so that he could tell him what happened. There's like an instant telling of people who must have been somewhat nearby who didn't really know what had happened and they're trying to bring him into the circle to tell him what had happened and as they're doing this, Jesus is saying, no, no, stop, don't tell anyone about this. think they'd listen. They just heard this word come out of this man's mouth that opened the ears of a deaf man and made him able to communicate. And now he speaks more words, this time to them. You'd think they'd do what he said. But they don't. Makes no sense. Sin never does especially in light of justification. For the, for the Christian, who knows the verdict that God has given to us, that he has declared us not guilty, how do we know about that? Through his powerful word. He has told us, you are not guilty of all your sins. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, proves that your guilt has been removed, not for a little while, but forever. We know that truth from God's word. You'd think that we'd listen to other words from God, other commands, perfectly all the time. Whatever he said, we'd listen to. 
but so often we don't. God says in Romans 8.28, famous passage, many of you may have it memorized, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. How many things? You can, you can give me some feedback here. How many things? All things. All things. He has done all things well, they said. But apparently that one command that came out of his mouth, not to tell anyone, that wasn't a good command. At least not in their minds. Didn't make sense to them. Wasn't the right time to keep quiet. Are you kidding me? We just saw an amazing miracle. How could we not tell others about it? That one command from Jesus didn't make sense. And so to them, that wasn't done well. They didn't listen. God tells us in Romans 8.28, he promises us. Paul confesses it. We know for a fact. God works for the good of those who love him in all things. Do you show that you believe that every single day? You know it, you say it, but do you believe it? I know I don't perfectly believe it, not every day. I'm sick of the masks and I'm the lucky one. I get to stand up here at least six feet away from you and speak to you without a mask. You got to sit here with one on, unless you got a good reason not to. You sick of it yet? Is this good? Is this good? Is this God doing all things well? I wonder from the perspective of the people in our text, when they say he has done all things well, was it good that, that Jesus didn't go to the town next door and take care of the ears of the man who was deaf in that other town? Was that good? That one man got healed and, and all the other deaf people in the region didn't that day? How about the moment before the miracle when the man was deaf? He had been deaf for a long time, it seems like, maybe his whole life. Was that good? That God had allowed that to happen up to that point? Was that just? Was that right? It's, it's not just God working for good either. An attitude I've, I've noticed myself struggling with lately in, in regards to this whole situation that we're living through. Why are we wearing these things again? It's the strong protecting the weak. That's the idea, right? Why do we have racial injustice in our land? Why are there people protesting, burning cities? Why is this happening? Because some are saying that the strong need to protect the weak, that those who have need to protect those who don't have. And there's many who throw up their hands saying, why can't the weak just be put in a box so the strong can just keep living freely? Or why do we have to take care of the weak? Why does someone who's weak need to be taken care of by someone who's strong? Well, maybe because God says that's how it should go. I want to read you a section from Psalm 82. This is a psalm writer named Asaph asking God to do something. Take a listen to what he asks God to do. He says... How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. You know what happens to the justified? 
You know what happens to the one who's been declared not guilty by God, who has the spirit of God living in him, living in her? You know what our prayer is? God, make my will like your will. Not my will, but your will be done. Teach me to desire the things that you desire, Lord. And what does Asaph know the Lord desires? Why does he ask the Lord to do these things? Because he knows the Lord wants these things. And so he says, Lord, do what you promise to do. Do what you will. Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Are these not the words of God? And yet so often we say, boy, that justification stuff is awesome. I love that. I love that, that justification that opens my ears to hear God's word, that opens my mouth to speak his word, that, that shows me what God has done for me, that he's declared me not guilty of all my sin. I love that. But as I walk with him in this life, so often I ignore the rest of it and prove that my sanctification is far from complete. This is a tough thing to preach on because the scriptures are clear. You're never going to be perfect on this side of heaven. And so maybe we throw our hands up and say, well, why are we talking about this then? Because God tells us we're not going to be perfect, so we're not going to be perfect. Why try? That doesn't come from the Spirit of God either. The fact of the matter is, God has declared you not guilty. He's declared me not guilty. And now, our goal as his people is to do what he says every day. To listen to his word and believe it and do it every single day. It's good for us every once in a while to think about our sanctification and to see where we fail because you know what it does? It drives us back to the one who has done all things well, whether you believe it or not. It drives you back to the one who never once struggled the way we struggle, who never once overlooked a portion of God's word. It drives us right back to God's son, who truly did perfectly do all things well, including obeying his father's command to die for your failures and mine, to pay for your sins and and mine. And like we talked about last week, his resurrection from the dead proves that his death worked, that his death was accepted, that your sins and mine are forgiven. And that resurrection means something. It means even more than your justification. Yes, it proves that you are not guilty. But it also proves that you will live forever with your God. That your death and mine is not the end. And so you no longer need to live your life in fear of death. As if death in this life were somehow the end. It's not. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of a time that will never end when you will perfectly be sanctified. When your will will perfectly be lined up with God's and will never deviate ever. Or you will be at perfect peace with him for all eternity. Lord's blessings to you all as you live in the joy of your justification being made holier and holier by God every day until you join him forever in perfect holiness for all eternity. Amen.